Well, hey, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good? So great to see you all. Uh, happy Father's Day. It's great to be. Thank you. Thank you to that one person. Grand Haven 11, are we awake? Come on. All right, there we are. There we are. Well, my name's Taylor. I'm the worship pastor here at Harvest and really excited to bring God's word today. Um, we've just got two weeks left in this series. We've been going over the last few months, tearing down stronghold. And so today, of all days, on Father's Day, we are going to tear down the stronghold of laziness. It's pretty fitting, isn't it? Before, we get of, before you guys get offended, I didn't mean that seriously, um, I think it's fitting, not because dads generally are lazy, that's, that's wrong to say, because dads generally tell lazy jokes, don't they? Nothing like a good dad joke. So to prepare our hearts to receive the word of the Lord speaking into our laziness and to commemorate Father's Day, let's just tell a few dad jokes. You guys ready? I sense we're ready. My wife said I should do lunges to stay in shape. That would be a big step forward. I used to be a personal trainer. Then I gave my two-week notice. Two-week, two-week if you see a crime at an Apple store, does that make you an eyewitness? Uh, it's inappropriate to make a dad joke if you're not a dad. It's a faux pas. It's my favorite. It's good. Great for Father's Day. <laughs> well, now that we're ready to get in God's word, um, but in sincerity, happy Father's Day. Grateful for all the men in the room, those of you who are fathers, those of you who are spiritual fathers. Um, and ultimately grateful for our Heavenly Father today. As we talk about laziness today and working, there are a few jobs that are as important and as difficult as being a dad. And we know how badly our church and our world today is in need of men who are good fathers and in need of men who will fill in the gaps for those who don't have dads and ultimately to point to our Heavenly Father. And as I think about that, I just want to celebrate and, and give attention to the fact that last weekend we had our vertical men rally. Uh, a few of us were up there. We weren't here at church last weekend because we were there for three days um, getting after seeking to be men who would live vertical lives, living exclusively for the glory of God and encouraged by that weekend and by what God's doing in the life of our church. And so as we celebrate that, as we see what God's doing collectively, would we lean into that this morning? Would we lean into the work that God's doing in our church collectively, but more specifically, the work that God wants to do in your heart, in my heart, that that's of utmost importance today. So with all that to say, let's get after tearing down the stronghold of laziness. So if today's uh, sermon title was a dad joke, it would be working hard or hardly working. Um, but if you're looking for a real big idea, our actual big idea is that laziness is harder than working. Laziness is harder than working. And today we're going to see that until we recognize that laziness is more inconvenient, is more painful, is more costly, is, is harder than work itself, then we'll fail to experience the joy that's found in work. And we're going to see this in 2 Thessalonians 3. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Thessalonians 3 as we uh, prepare to, to, to dissect that. Um, and as we talk about laziness, the definition of laziness is the quality of being unwilling to work or use energy or idleness. And idle is the word that we're going to see three times in 2 Thessalonians 3. That ultimately means laziness. The, the Greek word that's translated idle in our translation means lady, lazy, disorderly, undisciplined, 
The literal meaning of the word is out of line. It's meant to be like a word picture of a soldier who's out of step, out of their marching orders. And uh, one commentary said that this word was used to describe those who do not fulfill their obligations. So I think with that context in mind and the laziness we're going to be talking about today, a better definition would be the quality of being unwilling to work or use energy in the ways and things that God has called you to. And this is important for us to see this morning because it's easy like, oh man, I'm at church, we're talking about laziness, this message isn't for me, that's for my kid down the row, or that's for my spouse, or that's for my coworker that I want to send this to this week, but no, this message is about, is about me, it's about you. So turn your neighbor and say, this message is about me. It's about my laziness. That's right. Because laziness is a stronghold. Laziness is, is sinful, and it's something that we want to get rid of in our lives because ultimately what laziness is, is a life of a person who's claimed to follow Jesus but fails to follow through with it in specific ways. See, laziness isn't just the absence of work. Laziness is working in a way that is outside of God's design for work. And until we recognize the damage of laziness and the beauty of work, we will live as lazy Christians. And so let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3 in verse 6. We'll read the whole passage and we'll break it down. In verse 6, Paul said, Now we command you, brothers... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." So in this passage, this morning, we're going to see a warning, a promise, and ultimately a response. That for us, we're going to see a warning that we would uh, receive and take heed of in our lives, that we're going to see a promise that we would lay claim to, and ultimately, that at the end of the, this time, in the next half hour or so, that we would be led to a response. How are we going to respond today? And so first, let's look at the warning. A warning in this passage, laziness is costly. Just like our big idea said, laziness is harder than working. We need to see the cost of laziness. And in this passage, we see four costs, four things that are the cost of our laziness. And the first is this. The cost of laziness is a tarnished reputation. Tarnished reputation. Uh, Paul and the other apostles, the missionaries who had come and planted and established this church, they had passed on a tradition of the need to work for a living. They'd established this tradition that was all throughout the Christian faith, and they did it by their living example, the way they lived, and through their teaching, they, they taught about it. But in laziness, people within the church were tarnishing this established reputation. 
that rather than the, the Christians in the church in Thessalonica having a reputation of hard workers and integrity and obedience, that because of the lazy people, it was creating a reputation of disobedience. And the tarnished reputation had a negative effect. It had a negative effect on the, the lazy individual's personal testimony, right? If I claim to be someone who's saved by the gospel, by the, uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't show in the way that I live, what sort of testimony is that? And it wasn't just their own personal testimony, but it was derailing the mission within the life of the church. That Paul opens 2 Thessalonians 3 and says, May the word of the Lord speed forth, and then confronts the lazy people because they are slowing down and distracting from the work of the gospel. And possibly most importantly, it was not just a personal thing or within the church thing, but it was a damage to the witness of Christ outside of the church. And we can't miss this church that our, our reputation, our reputation, good or bad, is a representation of this church, the church. But more importantly, our reputation, good or bad, is a representation of the name of Jesus. And that people's experience with us can dictate and define their experience with Christianity and Christ as a whole. And so my question would be, what's what, what are the reviews? What reviews are coming in on you as far as the reputation? You know, what's, what's, what's the Yelp reviews for you as a representative of Christ? Do you have anyone in the room who is passionate about writing Yelp reviews? I feel like Brett, are you a Yelp reviewer? No? I know you're an IT guy, but maybe not that. But I don't, I'm not a big, you know, I don't write Yelp reviews. I've never done that, but I read them. And I don't know if you're anything like me, when I'm going somewhere, I want to find a restaurant to go on a date with or go with my family. I want to see what the reputation of the restaurant is and look it up and what are the reviews. Is it, is it good or is it bad? And um, it's helpful. Someone's experience can help you either uh, have a good experience or avoid a negative experience. And so as you would assume, there are some just amazing, hilarious Yelp reviews on the internet. So I just wanted to give note of a few of the tarnished reputations of these restaurants. These aren't local restaurants, don't worry. If you're a, we had uh, Matt from Righteous Cuisine was in the room before I should have. Um, but here we go, here's one review uh, from an unnamed restaurant, but by Ross F. who lived in New York. And he gave a one star review of this restaurant and said, the entire kitchen and, and wait staff saw an ice cream truck and ran outside, leaving me alone in the restaurant. 10 minutes later, they all came back with ice cream cones. I can't believe, still can't believe this actually happened. Is that real? That's crazy. Not a great reputation. And another one, I've never heard of this restaurant, but Chateau Marmont in Hollywood, uh, Victoria, she went there and gave it a one-star review as well and said, ate dinner here, ordered the heirloom tomato and a buffalo app. While eating the cheese, I noticed something strange and flipped it over to reveal a whole pickled wasp on my plate. Took 10 minutes for the waiter to come to our table, and we pointed out my plate. His response was to laugh, take the plate, and said, I'll get you another one. No apologies, no explanation as to why there were insects in my food. Outraged, my friend alerted the head host, who was mildly apologetic, but also offered to, uh, no explanation or response that seemed appropriate for their transgression. I've gotten better service at Denny's. Why are they hating on Denny's? Come on. Your money is better spent elsewhere. 
And I make light of that and show that, but to say, what are, what are the reviews that are coming in through us? What are the experiences that people have of Christianity and of us as representatives of, of, of Christ? What, what, what are we dictating about people's experience? You know, there was a recent Barna study that showed that one-third of non-Christians have said they would actually be interested in the Christian faith if Christianity had a better reputation. What a sad and sobering reality for us to bear the weight of. But I don't mean to make a blanket statement about the state of Christianity in America or anything like that, but to draw for you and to ask you the question, where have you and your responsibility as a Christian to live like Jesus, uh, have you been lazy and have you neglected to fulfill what you're called to do? And as a byproduct of that, tarnishing the reputation of your, yourself this church, the church, and the name of Jesus. Because the first cost of laziness is a tarnished reputation. And I know that's a heavy fact, but it's something that we need to hear today, a warning. Second uh, cost of laziness is that we become a burden to others. A burden to others. Paul in this passage talks about how he made the decision to forgo his right to take a salary or to take contributions or any sort of financial compensation from the church. And he does this not to say that like this is what all pastors have to do or to set a precedent or to make it a rule, but he does this to set an example. He does this uh, because even though he could take a compensation or contribution or salary, you know, it's, it was common in that time. The law, Old Testament law teaches about it. The practice in the temple was that way. And the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself taught that he could do that. But Paul chose not to because there was a problem in the congregation of laziness. And he was trying to set an extreme example and say, this is what it looks like to work hard. He was choosing not to be a burden on the people of the church, quite honestly, because there were already lazy people who were a burden to the church. A commentary called the Pillar Commentary said about this section of the passage that some members of the congregation continued the practice of not working, but depending instead on others for their daily bread that there were people who were able to work, and I want to highlight that, even in the passage, how it says that. This is, not, uh, this is not about ability. If someone is unable to work, I'm not, not talking to that person, this is about willingness, and that there were people who were able to work, but instead chose to mooch off the church. They were a financial burden. You know, while congregants of the church were working hard to make a living for themselves, their families, and then to give to the church for the work of the ministry and for helping people and advancing the gospel, and these people were taking advantage of that when they could work for themselves. I'd imagine that they weren't just a financial burden, but they were a social and emotional burden. They, they were burdening members of the church, not just by draining their resources, but draining their time and energy and focus and effort. And what I would say to us about this church is that it's easy for us to view church with a consumeristic mindset. To come to church and to think about not what can I give, but what can I get? And there are reasons and seasons when people require uh, uh, and they need to receive from the church more than they give to it, whether that's receiving uh, a physical care, whether that's receiving benevolence and financial support, 
whether that is receiving a, a counseling and discipleship and intentional, emotional, spiritual support. But that's not meant to be the, the norm. And what I would say is, is, I know there's people in the room who right now are in a previous season where you've been in a spot where you have needed a more a, a reciprocation, you've needed to receive more than you've given to the church and this message is not meant for you. When you've been in a trial or a, a difficult circumstance or even those who are, um, you know, elderly or widows or in need. But this is for the people who have been in that season, in that place of needing to receive, of needing care, of needing support, of needing it. And you're not in that season anymore, but you continue to be a person who takes more than you give. And my challenge would be that you wouldn't be a person who would just stay in the place of, of taking and getting and receiving and learning, but you would move to a place of giving and serving and teaching and leading and discipling. But there's some of us in the room today, I know this is a hard word, but you got to grow up. When people are new believers, they require more attention. They need to learn. They need to grow. But there are some of us that just need to grow up. And as I think about this, I uh, think about the fact that I have uh, four siblings, three brothers and a sister, and I'm the baby. And you know what that means? I'm the favorite. I'm the favorite of my parents, the favorite of my siblings. Highly recommend being the youngest kid. It is fantastic. And so what that meant is that growing up, I always had chauffeurs driving me around, to my sporting events in school and to hang with their friends. I had uh, people to, you know, buy meals for me and take me to, like, uh, Chicago sports games and concerts and all these things. It was awesome. It was a great setup. And I can vividly remember this moment early on in marriage when Sam and I went out to dinner with one of my siblings and uh, his wife, and it was that moment when the, the bill came to the table and my brother grabbed it and paid for it. And I didn't think twice about it. And Sam was like, why, why do you always let your, your siblings pay for us when we go out places? I was like, what do you mean? Like, that's, that's how it's always been. It's, it's, we both like it this way. Nothing needs to change. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but like, you're an adult. We have money. They have their own kids. They have their own homes and costs. Like, we, could, we can pay for ourselves. And I was like, I've never thought of that before. I'm not the baby anymore. And you know what? Sometimes, like when we go out, I'll pay for myself, and sometimes I'll even offer to pay for them. That's crazy. <laughs> and who of us in the room finds ourselves in that spot in the life of the church or in your family or at your workplace that you're, you're a burden to others, and it's like you're not, you're, not, you're not a baby anymore. You're not the new kid anymore. You're not the... We're adults and we're members of the life of this church and we need to give and not be a burden, but carry not just our own burdens, but carry one another's burdens and do the work of ministry to, together. So that's the second cost of laziness, that we become a burden to others. And the third is that uh, we have a concern with things that don't matter. The cost of laziness is a concern with things that don't matter, a concern with things that aren't a priority, a concern with things that aren't my responsibility. And look with me at verse, verse 11. It says this, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. 
And here's the thing with the lazy person, maybe just like myself in that story I just described. The lazy person never thinks that they're lazy. Doesn't the lazy person usually think that they're like the most busy person in the world? And I'll give it to them. They probably are busy, but they're busy with things that don't matter. They're they're busy with things that aren't the priority. And when we hear the term uh, busybodies, we naturally think of this idea, right, of people who get involved in other people's business and they're more focused on other people's problems than they are their own. And that's, that's true. That's a, that's a good way to apply this sense of laziness and, and idleness. But it's more general than that, that the word here that says busybody is, is really more this idea of a person who busies themselves with pointless, insignificant tasks. That Greek word busybody was translated in one dictionary to bustle about uselessly, to busy oneself about trifling, needless, useless matters. That a concern with things that don't matter as a result of laziness absolutely can mean busyness with business that isn't my business, but it can also be busyness with business that isn't, isn't a priority. And uh, this makes me think a bit about to-do lists. Is anyone in the room passionate about to-do lists? Like, like to write it out, love it. Oh yeah, Christy Moore's hand was quick in there. Love it. So my wife Sam's big on to-do lists, and so I'm big on to-do lists because that's how marriage works. And, and what I've found is that there's generally two approaches to a to-do list. The first approach is this, the person who looks at the list of things and says, I'm going to start with the most difficult, most uh, time expending task on the list, and then I'm going to go down from there to the easy stuff, and it'll get easier. And then the other approach is the person who looks at the list, and they're like, I'm going to do the small, easy thing that I can get out of the way, and I'll work my way up to the, to the hard thing. Who, who's, who's easy thing first, person with to-do list? Who's, uh, who's hard thing first with the to-do list? All right, pl- pretty split room, and I didn't mean to bring up a fight in pre-marriage counseling up here, but... Um, and my point isn't that there's a right or wrong way to do them. Both are okay. But what I'd like us to consider is that when it comes to to-do lists, that for the lazy person, maybe there's a, there's a third way to approach it, which would be for there to be a list of the things that you need to do, that you're responsible for, that you've been asked to do, that fall under your care, and to see all those things, and to say, you know what? I'm going to do none of those things. And instead, I'm going to add things that I want to do to the list. Like, why don't I add, you know, you know what's missing on this list? Time for my hobbies. Like, I just need more time playing video games or on my fantasy sports team or, you know, knitting. Sorry if you're a passionate knitter. I, I need to add things, like, I need more me time. There's that, that new season of that show I love that just came out. I got to binge that in one day. Top of the list. It's a little bit harder, though. Like, what if we added to the list, like, man, work 70 hours and then not talk to my wife and kids when I get home? Like, that, that's a reality in the room. Like, oh, man, I'm, I'm employee of the month 10 months in a row, but I've never served one day at church or I've never reached out to my small group member when they are clearly struggling And what I'd like us to see here, church, is that a concern with things that don't matter isn't just a a matter of wasting time. That again, laziness is not just the absence of work, but it's working in a way that fails to fulfill God's design for work. 
And that there are many of us in the room who, who would say, I'm, I'm not a lazy person. But, but you need to check your life and your to-do list again and to say, what has God called you to? What has God put under your responsibility to care for that is invisible on that checklist? Because the cost of laziness is that we would have a concern with things that don't matter. And the fourth cost of laziness is, is this, a lack of what I need which seems relatively obvious that a lazy person would be left without what they need. But again, what was happening here in the church is that, you know, they were being cared for, that there was a spirit of generosity and people who were giving food for them to eat and places to stay and, and helping the lazy, the lazy people. But the reality is, is that we know for the lazy person, if they begin to have a tarnished reputation, if they begin to be a, a burden to others, if they begin to waste their time doing other things, that it's gonna come to a point where no one wants to be around them. There's, there's gonna come a point where they're gonna be cut off. There's gonna come a point where they burn that bridge or that relationship and the person's like, gravy train's over, man. And we see this in, in, in the passage. Verse 10, Paul said, if anyone is not willing, let him not eat. The lazy person finds themselves with a lack of what they need physically because they're not willing to work, and those who are willing to work are tired of helping and meeting the needs they won't meet themselves. But here's the thing, the lazy person doesn't just find themselves in lack of what they need uh, physically with money and food and homes. They find themselves with a lack of what they need uh, emotionally, communally, relationally, spiritually. And we see that here in the text. Then in verse 14, Paul encourages the brothers. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Paul, Paul tells them, cut off the lazy person. Leave them alone in their need. Create in them a, a, an awareness that they are not doing the things to meet their own needs. See, Paul encourages members of the church to distance themselves from the lazy person. And why? Because doesn't that seem a bit harsh? Doesn't it seem harsh to cut off the person who seems to be in need and seems to require help? But Paul says, says cut, cut them off. And, and, and why? And the first reason is this, for their own personal sake. You know the scripture, the saying that says, a bad company ruins good morals. That's right. And if you surround yourself with lazy people often enough, it's, you, we shouldn't be surprised when you become a lazy person. Paul says, cut them off so they don't drag you down. Paul says, secondly, cut them off for, for the church's sake. And here's the hard truth. Paul was saying, you need to stop wasting time and resources on this person. Like there are other people who are desperate and hungry for the gospel and growth and care. There are people who are in actual need and, and are unable to care for themselves. We've got to cut this person off and, and care for those who need it. But third and most importantly, Paul says cut them off for the lazy person's sake. Why? That they would see their sin and change. So at verse 15, it continues, it says, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is, this is a warning. Paul said, cut off the lazy person so that they would heed the warning, see their laziness and the cost of it in their lives, be ashamed, convicted, and repent. It was a warning for their own good. And so I know, I know 
There are a lot of hard truths in today's message from God's word. But this is a warning for you. And I would just ask you and encourage you, is is this you? Do you see the stronghold of laziness uh, taking root in your heart and your life? Did you come in thinking, there's no way I'm a lazy person, but now see areas of your life that you are called by God and responsible for, that you are neglecting to fulfill? It's important today that we see the cost of laziness. Like hopefully now you are painfully aware of the laziness in your heart and the way in which it can bring ruin upon your life. But we don't just want to stop there, the negative view of laziness. We want to move to a positive, or I should say a right view of work. And we're going to see next in this passage is that if if a warning here is that laziness is costly, then in this passage a promise is hard work is rewarding. Hard work's rewarding. And we're going to see in a few moments in this passage very clear rewards for our hard work. But before we jump to that, I think it's important for us to make sure that we have a right and accurate view of work in God's creative design. But sometimes it's easy as Christians to believe that work is a result of of sin, of the fall. Like, oh man, it must have been amazing in the Garden of Eden. Like, the, you know, the trees were like in a, in a Disney movie and the branches would bend down and fruit would just go directly in your mouth. That'd be amazing. Uh, that wasn't it. Like a good theology of work doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1 and 2 because work is there. God, God made us to work. And we see this in Genesis 1 and 2, but I just want to highlight Genesis 2.15, you know, the Lord made the garden. It said there was no man to work the ground. But then in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work is good. We were made to work. We were made to work and keep and enjoy God's creation. We're called to do it. It's good. But I'll level with you. It's hard. Work is hard, and that's as a result of sin, of of the fallen nature that we live within. And we see this in Genesis 3, after Adam ate the fruit, God said to him, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants for the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But the punishment is not work itself, but that work is hard and laborious and frustrating. Work is good. Work's good, but work's hard as a result of sin. And and guess what? As a result of sin, not only is work hard, but our bend is towards laziness to not work. And so we've got a corrected view of laziness. We've got a right view of work that it is good. So let's see in this passage and recover the God-given good rewards for hard work. And again, a promise is that hard work is rewarding. So the rewards of hard work, we see two here that I want to lay out. The first is this. The reward of hard work is a life that brings glory to God. This is the most important thing for us to know. That the reward, the end reward of our hard work is that it glorifies God. That's what we were made for. We were made to work, for sure, that's there in Genesis. But bigger than that, we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
And so that's a reward of, of hard work. But what does this look like practically? Honestly, and maybe it's obvious for you, but it would be the opposite of the lazy person, the inverse of the things we've seen so far. That instead of a person with a tarnished reputation, the, wor- the reward of hard work, a life that brings glory to God, means that I'm a good example. My life is marked by obedience. The, my, my Yelp reviews, my representation of the church and of Christianity, I'm a positive representation. And not only am I a positive representation, but I'm a person who is now making an impact and replicating and an example to other people. I'm, I'm making disciples. It's the amazing thing, a life that brings glory to God, the result of hard work is that other people around us, they will embrace the gospel. They will be transformed. They will be replicated, not to be more like us necessarily, but more like Jesus. As that is happening in us, would God do that in, in others, in our kids, in our small group, in our coworkers, the people in the aisles around us at church? That instead of busying myself with things that don't matter, the reward of hard work, a life that brings glory to God, means that I live a quiet life. We see that in verse 12. Paul says, work quietly. But work quietly doesn't mean that you literally need to work and say no words. The word quiet there, it's actually this word that is used uh, a handful of times in the New Testament. It's the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 2 when it says that uh, women ought to, um, you know, be quiet. And this isn't a volume thing. This isn't a, this isn't a talking thing, a speaking thing. This is a, the nature of the way that you carry yourself. That ultimately to live quietly, to carry yourself in this uh, nature means working humbly, faithfully, with integrity in a way that doesn't draw attention to me, but points the glory to God. If the lazy person is a busybody meddling in others' affairs and in things that don't matter, then the person who works quietly is, is focused and directed and intentional and faithful and is the type of person who takes a thousand small steps of obedience in the direction of the way of Jesus. It's... Um, And as I think about that, the nature of someone who works like that, I could name so many people that come to mind, so many volunteers in the church, uh, certainly uh, uh, my my wife, but um, I just want to highlight the person that comes to mind in this moment as I'm here is uh, a woman named Sherry McIntyre who serves on our staff. And many of you, you you may not know Sherry. If you serve in uh, hospitality, you certainly know her. But she is an admin for our family care team in small groups and hospitality. And Sherry is just one of the most hardworking people that I've ever met or ever seen. But the thing about Sherry is that uh, certainly she's quiet in the literal sense, but also in the nature of her character. That she carries herself in a way that does not draw attention to her but in a way that gives glory to God, that shows what her life is about. That as we think about work, that sometimes we view work as a means to an end, right? I do this, I work X amount of hours to get X amount of money. And work is a means to an end, but the end is not just a salary or a dollar amount. Work is a means to an end, and the end is the glory of God. The end is that we would glorify God in all that we would do, that we would fulfill our created purpose. And Colossians 3 and verse 23 uh, spells this out. 
It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And we work hard because we know that first and foremost, we are rewarded by our Father in heaven. That for those of us who have uh, put our faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that after this life, God is preparing for us an eternal home, a paradise where we will live forever. Do you know that God's word says that there is a crown of glory that is awaiting you? And we look for that reward and we live for that. And that's the greatest reward of hard work But the awesome thing is that the reward that we receive is certainly eternal, and that's the greatest one. But the second reward of hard work is that our life is a blessing to many. Our life is a blessing to many. And as we talk about rewards personally that we receive, that also absolutely means that for our hard work on this earth, there will be earthly rewards that we will get. If we work hard at our jobs, we will get a form of payment. And if you're not, let me know and we can talk with your boss. But we work and we will get a blessing in one form or another. God's word says this in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 9. It says, what gain is the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil This is God's gift to man. That there is a blessing that is found in the joy of work itself. There is a blessing that is found in the enjoyment of what you've earned and what you save. That is absolutely a blessing. There is a gift of common grace to man. And that is a reward for our hard work. But we know that if that's our sole reward, it will not fulfill us. If that's our sole reward... We're not fulfilling our created purpose to glorify God. But if we see that reward and it's something that we get, the next step as a follower of Jesus, as a result of our earthly reward, the blessing to ourselves, the result all to be that our life is a blessing to others. Our life is a blessing to many. That God gives and God blesses and God rewards, not just for our enjoyment, not just for our pleasure, not just for our benefit, but that we would be a blessing and a benefit to others, that we'd be generous to them, to use what we get out of our hard work for the benefit of others. And 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, talks a little bit about this, of our ability to love and bless others. This is the first book to the church at Thessalonica where Paul again was talking about laziness, but what he says here is that now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. There it is again. To mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. That if the lazy person, again, is a burden to the people around them and is draining their resources and time and effort and energy, then the one who has worked hard and has received a reward or a blessing now bears and cares for the burdens of others. Our life is a blessing to many. And who is this embodied in more than Christ himself? A life 
that is for the glory of God and a life that is for the benefit and for the blessing of others, right? Christ, who was God himself, took on human flesh, took on the form of a man, lived a humble life, but a perfect, hardworking life on this earth, harder working than we ever could be. And then he died in our place for our sin, for, for, for our laziness, for our sin, that in his rising again, that we would have the benefit of salvation and forgiveness and purpose and hope and righteousness and hope when we fail, when we are lazy, when we are faithless, God's word says, he is faithful. And we embrace that. Christ died as a benefit to us. Hebrews 12 says this, as we come to a close, as we look to the example of Jesus Christ in living a life that is marked by hard work and, and, and bearing the burdens of others, that we would do the same. In Hebrews 12, 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely today, maybe it's laziness, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy that was set before him. Do you know what that was? The joy that was set before Jesus was your salvation, was your forgiveness, was your provision when you were unable to meet the needs that were lacking as a result of our sin. Christ died for you, for the joy that was set before him. And so for us, that verse closes and says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do not grow weary. We see that same phrase in the end of 2 Thessalonians. Paul says to the brothers, do not grow weary. So we saw a warning that laziness is costly, a promise that hard work is rewarding, and we're left today with a choice. Will you give up? Or maybe the question is better this way. Have you given up? Have you given up? Did your responsibility, did your work, did your calling get difficult and you, you found yourself being lazy and punting and not fulfilling the responsibilities that God has called you to. I hope that you would hear today that there's hope, that there's absolutely shame for our laziness, but that shame is meant to bring us to a place of repentance and embracing Christ once again and enduring and saying, we're gonna continue to live and to work hard and to do all that you've called us to, God, for you. Don't give up, there's hope. As I think about this, I mentioned the Vertical Men Rally at the beginning of today's sermon, and it was such an encouraging weekend, and I know so many of us men, we came back home fired up and ready to be better husbands and, and fathers and, and employees and servants of Christ, and, and I felt the same, and I missed my family being gone a few days, and I was looking forward to be with them and having quality time with them, and with my son in particular, I'm like, you know, I'm going to come home, be super intentional father, and we're going to have a great bedtime, and you know what, I came home and my son was like, no, I want mom. Like, hey, dude, you've been gone a few days. Like, I'm, I'm hanging with mom. She didn't, she didn't leave me. And in that moment, there's a level of like, man, I, I wanted to come home. I wanted to be a great dad. And like, 
there is an opportunity to simply just feel ashamed and like, oh man, I'm not a good enough dad. But by God's grace, I did not and will not stay in that place. But again, recognize that like, and it's such a small example, but whether my son uh, wants to or is willing or is, is deserving of my love and, and work and service and intentionality, it does not matter. I'll do it. Just like Christ in such a greater capacity faced hostility. We rejected him. We sent him to the cross, but still he said, I will work hard on your behalf. And in response to his doing it for us, would we do the same, church? Would we live lives for his glory and for the benefit of others and know that we can do it because of him, because of what he did for us, and because of his spirit living in us? So as we aim to do just that, let's pray, and then we'll respond in worship. Father, I thank you so much for your word today. Um, man, it's so encouraging in talking with people just how this, this sermon series has week after week just been like speaking exactly to our lives and, and convicting and, and revealing sin, revealing idols, revealing struggles. And as we come near to a close of this series, um, just again thinking over those words that it's meant to bring to shame, but it's not meant to leave us in shame. And would we not leave this place embracing the shame of our failures or laziness or sin or whatever it may be, but would we be convicted of our sin and would we turn and thank you, God, for the, the sacrifice and the righteousness of Christ that is available to us by faith. And as we seek to be a people who it, it works hard for your glory, Lord, would you help us in the power of your spirit by the strength of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.